Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday the 23rd of September and I'm joined by Annika Smethurst. Great to be with you, Tom. Yes, coming up, we are going to speak to Taria Pitt, who has an amazingly important message for Melbourne right now. I really think if you just know that whatever you're going through, when you come out of it, it will strengthen you and it will fortify you. You will be able to find a lesson, but don't expect to find the lesson or don't expect to be grateful for that experience straight away because I think that comes with time. Yeah, powerful, life-affirming uh, briefing conversation coming up with Burns survivor Turia Pitt, uh, who's very well-placed to give advice on dealing with setbacks. First, let's hit the big news of the day. The states are continuing to open back up. From midnight tonight, South Australia is opening its border to New South Wales after no community transmission there for the first time since July. So that means that people from New South Wales wanting to come into South Australia from Thursday onwards uh, will be able to do that without doing the 14 days of self-isolation. That was the South Australian Premier Stephen Marshall and the briefing's biggest fan, Prue Tilly, will be very happy about that one. Um, some movement in Queensland too. It's expanding its southern border bubble by 100 k's, so Queenslanders will be able to go to Byron Bay, Ballina and Lismore from the 1st of October. Here's Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. Residents will be able to apply for a border pass and then they will be able to freely travel around Queensland and Queenslanders will also be able to travel there as well. Queensland is considering reopening the borders to all of New South Wales on October 6th but only if there are zero mystery cases till then. Yeah, this is massive news, isn't it, these borders opening? And I guess it might end those border wars we've been getting bored by amongst the politicians. Look, they're slowly coming down. Canberra's the same. We can now go to South Australia and Queensland. It does seem like a long time before we'll get to WA, though. Got any holiday plans now that these borders are opening? (laughs) I was planning to go to South Australia until the Queensland border opened and that trumped that idea. Australia signed on to a new global agreement to make sure we get a vaccine, no matter which one it is. Yeah, the federal government's already done that deal with Oxford and Queensland University for their jab. And now we've committed more than $120 million to join COVAX. So this means we'll be able to buy doses for up to half of the population if one of the trials in the scheme is successful. 155 countries have signed up, so basically it gives us a better chance of getting a vaccine sooner if it's successful. Now, Annika, you've had uh, several briefings on this from government sources. Can you tell us more about how it works? Which trials will it get a vaccine from? Yeah, as, as we flagged there, we've already committed to one. We think the AstraZeneca Oxford one's going to be the first, but this sort of spreads the, uh, I guess, the chance that another one might work. We've put in a stack of money to this. How it works is richer countries actually put in a little bit more so poorer countries can get it. It's meant to be a more equal way to distribute a vaccine and and make sure there's not that sort of arms race to get there. Other countries that have signed up include Japan, the EU, Germany, but the US won't sign up because it's run by the World Health Organization and they've got a few issues with them at the moment. And so will this fund be able to get access to any successful vaccine? Pretty much. We hear that there's close to 200 vaccines being worked on. There's both first generation ones and second generation ones. So whenever they see one that will be successful, they'll be able to, I guess, push the money in in sort of a way that a startup would happen. We're putting money in and this is like going to be funding to get them off the ground if they're showing signs of success. And then there'll be, we're, we're going to pool our resources to keep the vaccine, to distribute the vaccine. So it's a little bit more equal than just that rush that rich countries can do, which poorer countries won't be able to. And have you heard any more about 
you know, how quickly we might have a vaccine, what the timing is? Look, most people are still saying the first quarter of next year. I was told we would be inundated with them by this time next year, but it's really about when we can first roll them out and start opening up. So hopefully by Christmas, I know Donald Trump is really unlikely to go to an election without a vaccine or very close to a vaccine. So that's November. So fingers crossed it's not that far away. Now, violent far-right extremism in Australia has surged during the pandemic. Domestic spy agency ASIO says 30 to 40% of its cases are now linked to the far right. Just four years ago, those threats only made up 10 to 15% of its caseload. ASIO's Deputy Director Heather Cook says radical groups are using the same tactics as the Islamic State, recruiting people who've been isolated from their school or their work through online propaganda. She says this is easier because people are spending so much more time online. She's also pointed to a rise in anti-government sentiment because of lockdown measures as a tool that makes it easier to find recruits for these far-right causes. And this is actually something we foreshadowed on the podcast a month ago when we spoke to US terror expert Professor Gary Ackerman. In the long term, though, that's where the real danger lies. And I think that is because um, a lot of the terrorists during this time and extremists are using this time now to really ramp up their propaganda and their recruitment and their extremist messaging. Yeah, interesting, Annika, to think how something like opposition to a lockdown could then push someone to much more extreme ideology. And the government finally unveiled its energy roadmap yesterday. We must follow the lessons of history and develop and then adopt new technologies to solve our hardest problems. In emissions reduction, it's the race for cost-effective, low and negative emissions technologies that will strengthen our economy, not weaken it. That was the Energy Minister, Angus Taylor. Um, His plan was immediately slammed by the former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. There is a body of opinion on the right of Australian politics and the Liberal Party, the National Party, the Murdoch press, which still clings to this fantasy that coal is best and if we can't have coal, we'll burn gas. I mean, it's bonkers. The way to cheaper electricity is renewables plus storage. So, Annika, we touched on this briefly yesterday on yesterday's briefing, but you were actually at the National Press Club for the announcement, the big speech by Angus Taylor yesterday. So you've got even more details. So can you explain more about this and why someone like Malcolm Turnbull was basically coming out of retirement to jump in and put the boots into this policy? Well, anyone who's had any interest in uh, federal politics for a long time now will know how divisive this issue has been. Instead of a carbon tax, which is, of course, proposed under the former Labor government, uh, taxpayers will pour $18 billion in over the next decade to projects to reduce carbon, but they will be ones that I guess the government are going to favour. So that's using batteries, hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, gas projects, They're not going to prop up uh, renewables in such a way because they say they're already mature technologies and that's not needed. So that's a major turning point, right? Because basically since the late 2000s, we started investing billions to try and kickstart our renewable sector, which to an extent has worked. But now we're hearing we're at a point where we no longer need to do that with taxpayer funds. 
Yeah, look, a lot of this is ideological too, as Malcolm Turnbull said. This issue has been vexed for so many governments, including his. He, of course, lost his prime ministership over the National Energy Guarantee, so his policy on this. There are people within the coalition that do still favour coal. There's still a lot of coal-fired power stations in Australia and there does need to be some sort of transition over to renewables. The government says it's not just about going to renewables. That's why they want to get gas in the mix for when big coal-fired power stations go down. Of course, Malcolm Turnbull was out there yesterday. We always uh, can find a former Prime Minister to criticise the current government. So will any of that policy need to get voted on in Parliament and could that create some roadblocks for the government? Look, it may do. Uh, Labor have said they want to work with the government technically and the, Labor, and the Liberal government said they want to work with Labor, but we know that this has hasn't happened in the past. Some of it will have to get through, including tinkering with some of those investment rules. They will be able to get it through the lower house, but once it hits the Senate, it might become a little bit difficult. So 2020 has been an undisputably terrible year for a lot of us. It might feel a long way away, but someday you may look back on it and realise it actually taught you to appreciate what makes you happy in life and what doesn't. Yeah, Churia Pitt had a very bad year in 2011. She was running an ultra marathon when she got caught in a grass fire and suffered burns to more than 60% of her body. She had more than 200 operations and lost seven of her fingers. Now she's written a new book where she says she's happier now than she was before her accident. And she really is one of Australia's most inspirational people. Her new book is called Happy and Other Ridiculous Aspirations. Churia, thanks so much for joining us. Um, You joke in your book about cheesy self-help books, but let's face it, there's no getting away from it. That's pretty much what you've written. But (laughs) coming from you, it's different. What you went through with your burns gives your insight a whole other level of depth and also credibility. What, what do you think your tragedy taught you about happiness? And, and how have you gotten to the point where you, you even write in the book that you're happier now than you were before the fire? Yeah, I guess that's a, that's a good question. And, and when I was kind of reflecting on, on the state of my own happiness levels and I felt just as happy as I'd ever been, I thought that was really interesting that you could go through a catastrophic event like I did and then manage to rebuild your life and recreate yourself and rebuild your happiness levels. And so I, I, I started doing a bit of research and there was a couple of really good papers about how there's a certain level of our happiness that's attributed to our genes, but then there's a massive 40%. We can improve our happiness by 40% by the intentional activities that we do. And I thought that was really interesting and I realised that a lot of the activities that can make you happier, I already did. So things like practising gratitude, for example, that's something I've done for years. I think about three things I'm grateful for every morning by thinking about things I'm grateful for. I'm, I'm training my brain to focus on the positives and that helps to create you know, a happier and more positive mindset. So a lot of the things I, I already did, but as I started researching and writing the book, I realised there was a lot of things that I didn't yet do as well. I guess I wanted to demonstrate to people that if they're interested in getting happier and if they're willing to do the work, so to speak. Yes, it's definitely possible. So what are the things that you didn't do and how did the tragedy change the way you approach those parts of your life? Yeah, so like one of the elements of happiness is being able to to savour the present moment and to, and to just be a little bit more 
mindful of it. And I'm not really good at mindfulness. I'm still not really good at it. I'm actually pretty crap at it. Hmm. That was something that I've been trying to improve on because, you know, research has shown that if, you know, if you're practicing mindfulness or if you're savoring the present moment, then you are not thinking so much about the past or the future. And staying in the present moment has been shown to improve your happiness levels. But I'm not I'm not great at that and I'm still not great at that. And I think I think that was a really cool thing about the book. Like there's so many different things we can do to improve our happiness levels. We're not going to be great at all of them, just like we can't be great at everything in life. So I think that was a good realization for me to have. And I think, you know, so often we expect ourselves to be so good at every single thing and then if we're not, we feel a little bit disappointed in ourselves. And I kind of wanted to turn that on its head because not every single thing I give in the book is going to work for everyone and not everyone's going to be great at every single thing I, you know, I explain in the book either. So it's kind of like just, you know, pick and choose, see which ones work for you. If it works, great. And if it doesn't, you know, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Your book obviously deals with some of those terribly dark times and you go on to describe a moment when you're in hospital and and saw your legs for the first time after your accident. Mm. Can you describe your mindset at that time, how you felt and how you slowly navigated a way out of there? I know the time you're talking about, it was in hospital and I was on a lot of medication. I saw my limbs for the first time and they were covered in blood, they were bandaged, And I I remember this feeling of revulsion in me. You know, I think that's a pretty sad state to be in, to be be revolted by your own self. And really how I rebuilt to the place where I am now is just tiny little infinitesimal incremental baby steps. So like one of the first things I did, you know, I would paint my toenails. Oh, sorry, I wouldn't paint them. My mum would paint them. So (laughs) I would be covered head to time bandages and I would just look down at my little toes and, you know, the, the toenails were a nice blue colour. And that, that made me feel better. And then another thing I did is I bought nice gym clothes. And that made me feel better going to the gym. So just really, really basic things like that. You know, when I wore my mask for two years, I, you know, I had to get used to wearing it. Then the time came for me to take it off. And so, again, I started really small. I started not wearing it in my own house. I started not wearing it if I invited a girlfriend over for coffee. I started not wearing it for a short little stroll around the block. So really the place where I am now, you know, it's not wasn't magic and it's not a giant cataclysmic event. It was really just doing these tiny little baby steps one at a time. You've got this incredible personal experience, which would obviously help you write a book like this. But What extra research did you do about happiness for the book and what did you learn about yourself in that process? Yeah, one of the one of the really great pieces of research and one of the people that I um I interviewed her for the book as well is Sonia Libomirsky. She's I guess she's kind of regarded as like the world expert on happiness. She's written a lot of great books about it and her books are all I guess you could call them in the self-help genre, but they're, you know, all of the stuff she says is backed up by scientific research that she's conducted. A lot of the stuff I found when I was reading this book, when I was reading her her research, I already did, like practising gratitude, but then a lot of other things that she came up with or she recommended, I realised I didn't do enough. So things like practising mindfulness or savouring the, the present moment. 
Yeah, Cherry, you also spoke to a researcher, a linguist, who um, looked at the words that describe emotions that exist across many different languages, and you found that of the seven uh, most common feelings people have, six of them were negative and only one of them, um, the word basically that means joy in most languages, was the only positive. And I think that highlights how how much the human mind naturally is drawn towards the negative. I mean, that's our survival instinct. And it seems like that's what drives so much of our thinking. And that's what we need to re- reprogram with so many of these these methods and ideas you're talking about in the book. Yeah. And I guess like, you know, that's the negative bias in our brain. And there's been some other research that sh- that's shown that you need to have around three to five positive interactions but if you have one negative interaction, it, it will just outweigh that completely. So, for example, you might have a really great day at work and someone might say to you, hey, Tom, that haircut, it's interesting. And then you might ruminate on that comment all day, that little comment that someone's made to you. And I think that's just, like you said, that's 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 how we've survived. We've survived by always looking at the picture and picking out what's wrong because if you are a caveman and you didn't think to remember that there might be a saber-toothed tiger lurking near your cave, yeah. you might not be here today. You might not have passed on your your genes. So I think it's inherent in all of us. And I think that's why, you know, just a simple thing like practicing gratitude, you're consciously looking for things in your life that you're grateful for. And that's helping you to focus on the positives. And that gets you in a habit of focusing on the positives, and that helps you to build, a, a, you know, a stronger and more positive mindset. I guess I want to temper all of that by saying that, you know, part of happiness is accepting that we're not going to feel happy all of the time. Um, you know, we all feel a range of emotions, happiness, joy, but we also feel sadness, resentment, jealousy, envy. And I think we don't really like those emotions because they don't really feel good. They're not really comfortable emotions for us to sit in. But I think if we can just acknowledge them, accept them and and drop this facade that everything's okay, I find for me, the sooner I acknowledge them, the sooner they dissipate. You write about learning from the hard things in life and that they are often the best teachers. And I think once you realise that, then the hard things aren't as hard because you realise they're the great teachers. Yeah, and I mean, it's really hard when you're going through something hard to be able to think, you know, oh, I'm sure there'll be a lesson in this. <laughs> you know, for everyone down in Melbourne, they're probably not not focused so much on finding the lesson and finding the goodness out of their lockdown. They might just be trying to just get through and every day just having the mindset of, okay, it's one more day closer to the end of this lockdown. Uh, you know, it'll, it'll be over when it's over. And I don't think they might, you know, not as focused on finding the lesson. But I really think if you just know that whatever you're going through, when you come out of it, it will strengthen you and it will fortify you. You will be able to find a lesson, but don't expect to find the lesson or don't expect to be grateful for that experience straight away because I think that comes with time. What does your life look like now, Choria? When I met you seven years ago, you were still going through heaps of rehab. You'd just written your first book, sort of becoming a public figure and telling Australia your story, and you've been an inspiration for so many people since then. What are you able to do physically? What are your What are your interests? What does your life look like these days? Yeah, well, I'm a mum of two. I've got a baby and a toddler. They keep me uh, extremely busy. We live on the south coast. So if I've got the kids, 
then my days will be, you know, a combination of <laughs> going to the park or taking the kids down the beach or going for a bushwalk with them. And if the kids are at uh, preschool or if I've got some family to help out with the baby, then I'll be doing things like today, speaking with people like like you guys, or I'll be writing or just stuff like that. So I live a pretty good life. I get to go surfing. I get to go running. I get to live in my beautiful town of, of Ulladulla, and I get to spend a lot of time with my family. And I think all of those things that I do, they all bring me a lot of happiness. And I think that's what helps me to be the, the generally, not all the time, but generally speaking, the happy person I am today. That was Churia Pitt, one of Australia's, to put it simply, Best human beings, wouldn't you say, Annika? <laughs> yeah, she's pretty incredible. Um, even thinking back as she was speaking about some of the stuff that's happened in my life and how I've got through it, it just pales into insignificance listening to her. She's incredible. Yeah, her book's called Happy and Other Ridiculous Aspirations, and I guess it couldn't come at a better time. Tomorrow on The Briefing, Aussies returning home from overseas. The struggle with the airlines in particular, who are also struggling themselves. A Podcast One production.